0: Hello, and welcome to a Walk of Faith podcast. I'm Maribel Mayorga, and I'm on a mission. I hope to orient and guide you through your journey of faith, but I cannot do it alone. So we will go through together with the help of many friends. You may have a lot of questions, which is totally normal. In fact, I am happy that you have them. So don't worry, we're going to cover them and help you so that you don't feel alone. So what are we waiting for? Let's get started. Today on the podcast, we have a bishop. Yes, guys, we have a bishop. And I'm so happy he is here with us because he is way beyond busy. And I'm so happy that he said yes. He's going to answer the questions we have here, the question you guys sent us. Thank you so much, Bishop Thomas Dowd. And welcome. Welcome to the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So, Bishop Thomas, you're the Bishop of the Diocese Sault saint Marie. And it's so sad for me because you were here in Montreal <laughs> before. <laughs>
1: when did you? I was. I was. It's true.
0: <laughs> when they say, yeah, he's going to Ontario, I'm like, no, no. But it's okay. God sent you there for a reason. Actually, can you share with us the story? You say you, I mean, how you got there? Because I remember you, you were saying, oh, you know, I was praying. this diocese because they didn't have a a bishop or something like that you were and then by the end let me
1: tell you the story so i made some uh, pastoral connections with some people in ontario uh people who had been through some rough times in their lives and uh some of the guys they were going on a hunting trip and I had never been hunting in my life. I mean, I lived in downtown Montreal, you know, <laughs> what are you, what are you going to hunt? Squirrels, you know? So I had never done that, uh, but it was on my bucket list. And so, and I knew the experience was not about hunting. It was about fellowship. It was about, you know, there's something very ancient about men getting together for this sort of experience. <laughs> So I thought, I'm going to do it. Uh, So I asked, where is it going to be? And they said it's a place called Manitoulin Island, which I had never heard of. Looked it up in Google Maps. It was really far from Montreal. I I drove the whole day to get there. (laughs) But I connected with them. Uh, Manitoulin Island is in Lake Huron. And so it's, uh, it's absolutely beautiful. Honestly, it's Mm -hmm. quite something. It, It it was just amazing. So we enjoyed this time together. And it was Thanksgiving weekend in 2020, so October. So you can just imagine the fall colors and everything. And I don't have a hunting license, so I didn't do much except sit in the woods in a in a blind and pray my rosary a lot or just talk to God a lot. And then they all wanted to leave on the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend to get back to southern Ontario to be with family for dinner, which makes sense. So I got up early Sunday, and I drove back to Montreal. It was a beautiful, sunny day. And as I was driving through, I realized I'm in the territory of the Diocese of Sault Ste. Marie. And this diocese was without a bishop, because the previous bishop had been named Archbishop of Ottawa. So they were waiting for a new one. So I got my rosary off the mirror in my car, the rearview mirror, and I thought, I'm going to pray for these people. I'm (laughs) going to pray for this diocese, and I'm going to pray for the next bishop, whoever it might be. So I got home Sunday night, Monday morning. I got a phone call from the papal nuncio, the apostolic nuncio, telling me, Thomas, I have good news. The pope has appointed you bishop of Sault Ste. Marie. (laughs) And I think my reaction was, really? (laughs) Wow. I don't think he was expecting that as a response, and he said, "So do you accept?" And well, of course I do. I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, God didn't have to hit me over the head with it; it was obvious.
0: <laughs> that was so obvious.
1: You know, there there are times when we wonder what is God's will, yeah. and other times it's just so in your face, so clear. So of course I said yes, and and I, I mean it made a great story, in order to uh, introduce myself to the people. Yes, and uh, it's been a, a journey ever since. So I was installed as bishop here on the seventeenth of December, uh, twenty twenty. So in the nothing quite like moving to northern Ontario in the middle of winter in the middle of a global pandemic.
0: Exactly. That's what I was gonna say. I'm like, yeah, I think twenty twenty. That's pandemic. <laughs> that's oh pandemic. <laughs> yes, it
1: was. Yes, it was.
0: <laughs> well, I remember when you shared that story. I'm like, oh, that is like. God, God, God is so, so big. And yes, he answered our, our questions. And sometimes I'm like, sometimes I'm so blinded, you know, I remember one of my friends is like, we're so blinded by our, we're so focused on what we want as an answer. And sometimes God just like brings it in. Like here, here it is. Here it is.
1: Yeah. I'll be honest. I have a hard time praying for stuff. Because I just figure God knows better than I do what I need and what's going on. And maybe, you know, if I pray for something, God might be, you know, sitting back going, I'd like to give him that, but it'll have consequences elsewhere. And, you Mm -hmm. know, so I tend to just say, thy will be done.
2: And, you know, Mm
1: -hmm. And, and for me, I have found that when I pray Thy will be done and I pray for it for my own personal life. Gosh, it's never boring. <laughs> I can tell you one thing about you know this vocation and and not just this one, but any time when we authentically give our life to God, maybe a lot of things, but it'll never be boring. If you want to be bored, do not give your life to God. Just don't, you okay. know. But but if you want a life that will uh it's never good, it's not always gonna be easy. I'm not saying that. I mean, even Jesus got had to. Mm -hmm. Go on the cross. It wasn't always easy, but it's never without meaning and it's never without surprises. So,
0: so true. So true. Yep. So, before we tackle with all the questions, can you please share a little bit about yourself for those who don't know you? Yes, now we know that you're from Montedar. You're the Bishop of the Diocese of Saint Marie, but your journey of faith. Who is Bishop Thomas Dow?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I'm originally from Montreal. So I was raised in the West Island, grew up in Pierrefonds-Roxborough area. I went to school at public high school there, um, uh, Pierrefonds Comprehensive High School, Marianopolis College, Concordia University. Uh, I was at Concordia. I got my first degree in international business and finance. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. That was a very formative time. I grew up in a practicing household, and I was particularly blessed because. My dad had a degree in medieval philosophy, and medieval philosophy, of course, is tied to a lot of church teaching as well, and so he was very knowledgeable. My mom had a degree in theology, and she actually studied in Germany. She's a German immigrant. She studied in Germany in the uh, time of the council, Vatican II, and the immediate post-council, so You can imagine, you know, when you 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 go to church on Sunday and you come home for family lunch, the conversations around well, what'd you think of the priest's sermon, as homily, (laughs) and that sort of thing? We had some pretty in-depth discussions, Mm -hmm. and uh, my my parents were great. They were strong believers in respect of conscience, so they tried to provide us a good example. They certainly provided a certain aspect of religious discipline, particularly when we were younger, but. It was never sort of, well, this is what we believe. Don't ask questions. Just believe it.
2: Mm. That
1: was never, ever their mentality. In fact, you know, we were told that faith fundamentally is reasonable.
2: Mm.
1: You know, there's faith and you don't have to switch off your brain if you become a religious believer. You you might have to turn it up to 11. (laughs) You know, you might have to activate your brain more, but it doesn't... uh, Faith and lazy thinking don't go well together.
2: Mm. And
1: if anybody tells you otherwise, then they really haven't thought it through. <laughs> so this is this is the way that uh, I was raised. Now, so I went to church on Sunday, and I was involved in parish activities and that sort of thing. Uh, Very comfortable around that. Uh, when I was little, I thought about becoming a priest, like a lot of kids raised going to church think, you know. I thought about becoming a priest, but I also thought about becoming an astronaut or, uh, you know, being a firefighter or all kinds of other, you know, interesting professions. And so, I mean, it wasn't, it was little kid thinking, you know, it wasn't a big deal. When I was in high school, uh, astronauts sort of dropped off the radar, but I was interested in other things. I took my first business course and I really enjoyed it. And so... You know, astronaut, uh, firefighter—maybe those weren't there anymore, but priesthood was still there as an option. But it was still one option among others. It was a maturing thing. It wasn't originally my plan to go into seminary. Like I say, I studied in business, and I had thought that I would probably work in the uh, development sector, international development. But particularly how uh, entrepreneurship and business development can tie in to mm-hmm countries that are developing it was I, I certainly wanted to have some kind of career that was going to be about helping other people to grow and develop themselves um, and so whatever that was going to look like i figured that would be part of it then i i got a job after graduating i worked for an international software uh, group uh, actually a, a big telecom company called ericsson So they were actually the inventors basically, or the commercial inventors of the cell phone back before. Yeah. Back before they were called cell phones, uh, they were called car phones because they were so bulky. You had to have it in your car or, (laughs) or it was a phone with a battery pack and an antenna and everything that was the size of a suitcase. So you would carry around a suitcase with a handset on, uh, The reason it's called the cell phone is for technical reasons, actually related to the nature of the technology. So I I worked for them. I was not an engineer, a business guy. So at first, they didn't quite know what to do with me, but I, I learned fast. And again, my dad was a ham radio operator, he was an amateur radio enthusiast. And so I knew something about radio communications just through that. And so working in the cell phone is basically a fancy two-way radio that's all it is and so i got to understand the technology and i moved up in the company and uh the the company was growing quickly when i started i think they had about 200 employees and when i left three years later they had eaten oh so this is just at the beginning of the tech boom uh-huh. uh 92 to 95, this newfangled thing called the World Wide Web got started in those <laughs> years. You may have heard of it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, people think the internet started then. The internet is actually a lot older, but the web is a layer on top of the internet. It came along. I, I saw it emerge as week by week as we were, uh, we were doing our, our thing. And so... I was really able to be on the cutting edge of some very exciting stuff.
2: Mm.
1: It was, uh, it was great. I I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people I was with, but I realized that, you know, my life was not going to be about making cell phones. Mm.
2: Okay.
1: Going back to that desire to be in some sort of development program. My, my goal was to, work and then eventually apply for an MBA program to further my education. And for that, you needed work experience. But then I realized, you know, maybe I need a qualitative change. I need to go in a different path. This is for a few reasons. Uh, I mean, one of the great benefits of being in a company that was growing so quickly is I was very quickly made a manager. Of an international software testing, mm-hmm. and so I was, you know, I had sort of arrived for a person with a degree in international business. That's kind of the dream. Yeah. And so I, I, I was twenty-four, and you know, you spend your early years of your career usually maneuvering to try mm-hmm. and get the the job you want. You have to pay your dues first, mm-hmm. you know, and take some jobs that are uh, maybe less what you want to do, but it helps you build your experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I had it. I had the job. From then on, it was going to be more of this. You know, more of more money, more travel, more who knows what, prestige, all kinds of things. But effectively, it was going to be more. I was able to look down the road and have my midlife crisis at the age of 24. It was uh, (laughs) a big benefit. And I realized, yeah, I need to change.
2: Mm.
1: Now, at the same time, I had gone through a bit of a spiritual crisis, which started as I left university. Um, I started to question whether or not the Catholic faith really was the way. I mean, I was raised Catholic and Mm -hmm. I believed what I did sincerely, but I believed it because I was Catholic and that's how I had been raised. It, all of this, I won't get into the details of how this initiated because some of it is personal to other people and I wouldn't want to share their story without their permission. But basically, I encountered a situation that was, for lack of a better word, evil. Mm. A person who was suffering at the hands of another in a way that was evil, truly evil. And so, it shook me. It shook my confidence in the goodness of God and, and all kinds of other things. At the same time in the world, there was this terrible war. You know, we have this war in Ukraine right now. There was this terrible war in Bosnia, Croatia, you know, the former Yugoslavia. And people kept saying, as I saw in interviews, you know, why are you fighting? I mean, you lived side by side. Your, your families married into each other. How did this happen? And people were bringing up grievances from generations ago. Well, this happened, you know, 80 years ago. And so we have to have to get justice. (laughs) Well, and I was just thinking justice is great, but sometimes there's a fine line between justice and vengeance, you know, justice and recrimination. And uh, because nobody goes around saying, I want revenge. They say, I want justice. Yeah. And it just got me thinking, we need a world that values forgiveness. And who's talking about that? Mm. Who's talking about that? And so that really opened me up to a vocation. Now, the questioning phase, I I started to look into all the various religions of the world. I read the Quran cover to cover. I read the Bhagavad Gita. Of course, I went through the scriptures in detail, uh, the Bible uh asked a lot of questions did a lot of studying and because i worked at a company that was telecom and therefore had access to the world wide web before anybody else knew what it was i was able to download all kinds of materials that normally you would only ever get by going to an actual physical library and a a specialized one at that suddenly it was all available so i read like crazy and uh What I realized is that, you know, before I was, I believed because I was Catholic. Mm -hmm. After this experience, I was Catholic because I believed. Mm. I came full circle, but I was different. Mm. My faith hadn't really changed, but I was different. And I also came away with a much greater sense of being rooted in a tradition, uh, being rooted in a church that has... A magisterium, a a teaching authority. And so from there, when I thought about how am I going to lead this life and the importance of forgiveness and all that sort of thing, I guess all of those elements kind of converged on priesthood. I didn't go into the seminary absolutely convinced I was going to be a priest. I like to tell people I sort of baby stepped my way into the Mm -hmm. seminary. But, you know, like I thought, well, I should probably talk to my parish priest about this. Okay. And because uh, I figured, well, if I talk to him about it, it doesn't mean I'll be a priest. But if I don't talk to him, I'll, I'll never I'll find never out. Mean. So I might as well talk. So we talk. He says, he gives me the phone number of the uh, vocation director for the diocese. I thought, well, I suppose I should go meet him. Eh, if I meet him, it doesn't mean I'll be a priest. But if I don't meet him, it, I definitely won't be one. So I might as well go so then he, he get, hey, we meet, have a good meeting. Gives me the application form. I thought, well, okay, now I got to fill out the application form. I fill it out. Doesn't mean I'm going to be a priest, but if I don't fill it out, I'm definitely not going to be one. So I'll fill it out. And then you had to write the essay. And then, 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 where it got serious was I had an apartment, and I had to break my lease. You mm-hmm. know how in Montreal it's all the July first yes. uh, moving, and so you've got until March thirty first. <laughs> And uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is getting real. Because if I break my lease, it doesn't mean I'm going to be a priest. <laughs> but if I don't break my lease, I'm definitely not going to be one. Yikes. So, you know, at a certain point, your commitment level starts to rise, you know, through choices. And uh, but I, I decided to, as I said, I I had to know. Yeah. Uh, you know, they say that uh, Michelangelo, when he was carving statues, he would say that the statue was already in the block of marble. He was just removing the material around it. I feel my vocation is a bit like that. My vocation was already in me. And through these choices, I was kind of removing the material around Mm -hmm. it bit by bit, you know? So that's sort of my story. Obviously, I, I just kept going. And I, uh, well, I'm a bishop now. now so. You're a bishop? Yeah.
0: But how old were you when, um, when you got like this, you know, the, you were saying, okay, maybe it's a priest, you know, I have to go. And
1: well, as I said, when I was very little, I thought about being a priest. So when I look but... back, there's a continuity of yeah. the call, but it, you know, the maturity level of the call changed okay. The where it was really serious was probably, uh, when I was 24. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I graduated university at 21.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I worked in telecom for three mm-hmm. years, so
0: and it's really interesting how you were like you were not just like not not stuck, but you were not thinking about the Catholic faith, but you were reading other books too, you know?
1: Oh absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well, as yeah. I said, I was raised in a household that believed uh, that uh, faith and reason go together and and mm-hmm. faith look our our faith has been challenged since it got started people were questioning jesus in order to try and trap him so the idea of people having questions sometimes sincere sometimes not and having to respond to them is as ancient as jesus himself True. and so we i i have no problem with that and i have it, one of the benefits of that experience of reading all of those other faiths is i came away with great respect for people of. Any kind of faith background. Uh, And what I have found is that for people who have been raised in a faith tradition where unfortunately they were raised in a way that caused their brains to turn off, Mm. you can't have a dialogue with them. But for those who are sincere believers who really try and understand their own tradition, they love it, they want to talk about it. And when you're able to ask intelligent questions and have a dialogue, they just become so so passionate about that. And even though you may have two very different faith traditions, they see you as a friend.
2: Mm. So
1: I, I'm happy to count many, many friends with, from different traditions. Now, they know that I don't agree with every element of their doctrine. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily agree with mine. And to be honest, if I honestly thought they were right, then... I suppose I would have to stop being Catholic
2: and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and go
1: for them. I, I, you have to follow your conscience and your conscience has to follow what it perceives to be true. Yeah. But, but that can't be an excuse for laziness. It, it actually is very demanding.
2: Mm. Uh, and
1: so I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident through my own experience that the church, the Catholic faith particularly has, the most complete presentation of religion and of faith that you will find anywhere. It's the most eternally consistent. It's the most consistent with human experience. A lot of people don't think so, but I submit that the faith is big. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle. And until all the pieces get put together, it may not be as easy to see the big picture that will emerge as those pieces come together and so i really as a bishop i've kind of dedicated my life to helping people put the puzzle of faith together with Mm -hmm. great respect for other traditions but also with the the conviction of that our, our our catholic faith has something beautiful and the real scandal is not that our faith isn't beautiful it's that we don't always live up to it you know but even that's part of our beauty of our faith, because we're <laughs> we're a faith that believes in forgiveness and that we're all sinners and that God is on the side of sinners who try their best. And so yes. thank goodness.
0: Thank goodness. And you know, this is great because we do have some questions that it's that involves what what you just said exactly. You know, believers and unbelievers, our faith and all that. So we're gonna jump in. Please. Bishop Dow. We're gonna jump in. We have tons of questions. Again, I don't know if we're gonna We're going to try. Here are the questions. Uh, Let's go one by one. How did original sin cause death? If there were animals before, if there were animals before Adam and Eve that possibly died, like dinosaurs. So how did original sin cause death?
1: Okay, uh, good question. First of all, the Bible uses two expressions for death. And so one is uh, physical death, which is known as the first death and the other is spiritual death, which is known as the second death. First and second death are referred to particularly in the book of Revelation. So when we ask what's the connection between original sin and death, Mm -hmm. we have to distinguish between those two. Um, Obviously, sin and spiritual death, people understand pretty intuitively that if you commit major sins Mm -hmm. and you don't Repent if you don't say you're sorry and make amends, then you're going to carry that effect of sin with you, and so, yeah, the the effect of of, of major sin is a kind of spiritual suicide, mm. and so it has serious effects. It damages the soul. It has serious effects on soul's ability to receive the mm-hmm. grace of God. So that that's spiritual death, and as I say, I think that's fairly yeah. intuitive. Exactly. Um, now, the Bible does say that through the, through the sin of our first parents, that death entered the world. And when it uses that expression, it is referring to spiritual death, but there's also a reference to physical death. So how does that work? In a, a time before we had a lot of understanding of, uh, you know, the Earth's history and asteroids and dinosaurs and all that sort of thing, Uh, It was basically thought that people and animals arose essentially at the same time. I mean, nobody knew anything about dinosaurs. And so the presumption was that death entered the world very early on after the start of life. Now that we have a much better scientific understanding, obviously life began much before any possible sin might have occurred because human beings are fairly late on the evolutionary chain right Mm
2: -hmm. so
1: this is where this kind of question comes from for physical death it's thanks to our greater knowledge and again it's you know from our catholic perspective it's not a it's not a problem physical death for what we're talking about here is not physical death of animals the physical death of animals can, it perfectly squares with the idea of uh, you know, God creating the world mm-hmm. as it is. It's about physical death of people. Adam and Eve, our first parents, were understood to have received a promise to be preserved from physical death, or at least from its eternal consequences. How might that have happened? The Bible presents three ways. Well, first of all, could have been that they would have had a grace to just not die. I mean, consider that Jesus was able to heal people and able to raise people from the dead, like his buddy Lazarus, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that was it. Other options are that there would have been a uh, possibility of physical death, uh, but that God would have assumed people into heaven. The Bible describes uh, uh, Elijah going up to heaven in a chariot, so he didn't suffer physical death, according to that story. There's the possibility of a a transfiguration, the idea that before we would have physically passed away, we would have been transfigured, like Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. There's also uh, the possibility of something called the Dormition. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so, Mary, Virgin Mary, who had no sin, but she died, Mm -hmm. except we don't call her death death. We call it the Dormition, because for her, dying was no more frightening than falling asleep at night. Dormition is related to the French word dormir or Mm. the Italian dormire. So you like, each of us, we fall asleep at night, we lose consciousness literally every night, and we don't do so in terror, (laughs) you know, because we're confident we're going to wake up on the other side when the new day starts. It's the same thing, you know, if for a woman of her great faith and in connection to God, death was no more frightening than falling asleep. So we don't call her death, death. We call mm-hmm. it Dormition. And then finally, and so she would have passed away in the hope of the resurrection. Uh, and finally, there is that possibility, resurrection. Uh, it's Is it possible that uh, Adam and Eve's part of their mission would have been to conceive and bring forth the Messiah? You know, maybe their firstborn was going to be the incarnate word of God, and therefore they would have been saved from physical death through Mm -hmm. a supernatural intervention, just like Jesus is promising to do for us. So there are all kinds of different approaches that uh, all of them square with the data of natural science. Mm -hmm. There's no problem with putting them side by side. Which one it is who knows but Mm. in some ways it's irrelevant we're in the world we're in now and we have a guy who died and rose from the dead Mm -hmm. and so that changes everything that that shows us the path that we're on now but the data of adam and eve and dinosaurs and all that is very easily squared with our catholic faith Mm. great you don't have you you don't have to pick one or the other
0: okay Hmm, great question okay next one what do you do with your palms? So I, I guess it was from Palm Sunday. As you come back home, what do you do with your palm?
1: Okay. Uh, it's not just about palms. It's about any blessed object. Mm-hmm. So you've been given a, a, a rosary that got blessed by the Pope or by a bishop or by a priest, whoever. Uh, you've You've got Uh, Holy oils. I mean, there's all kinds of things. How do we dispose of blessed things? Uh, Generally, we would dispose of them in fire. So you you can keep them. You can can keep them for as long as you want. There's no problem. If they uh, are perishable, like holy oil is made from olive oil. So after a while, it's going to go funny. So if it it has to be disposed of because it's perishable, uh, for holy oil, for example, we would normally soak it in cotton and then burn it. Mm-hmm. So we use fire as a way to dispose of these things. Throw, the idea is to have some element of respect, yeah. tossing it in the garbage, pouring it down the toilet. That's not respectful. Mm-hmm. Like, don't pour your holy water down the toilet if it yeah. you know, starts to go funny. So holy water we would pour into the ground uh in many churches there's a special sink in the sacristy called the sacrarium where holy oil or the water that is left over after the the special vessels have been washed after a mass that water doesn't get poured down the sink it gets poured directly into the ground through this special sink called the sacrarium and so for palms which obviously can't pour down the sink if it's you could return it to the ground by burying it, or also by burning. So, like for example, when I visit when I visit people to anoint the sick, or if I'm yes. doing confirmations, people will sometimes give me a cloth. Uh, I prefer to use Kleenex because it's paper, mm-hmm. and then I can just give the Kleenex to somebody, and it'll be burned as a way mm-hmm. of sort of returning it to uh, to the Lord. And we mm-hmm. say a prayer as we do so as well. Okay. Specifically for your palms, usually uh, many churches will allow you to return them mm-hmm. to the church and they will burn them and use them as the base material for the ashes for Ash Wednesday the next year. Yes.
0: Yes. yes. So please, guys, don't don't put it in the garbage or like toss it on the garbage or in the toilet. <laughs> keep it. Keep it. Or like Bishop Dowd said, I, I know a lot of parish, they just you just have to return the the palm and then they're going to do the What they know, what they what is good to do. Next question, how how many t- oh, how many times do you need to go to confession? I always confess the same thing also. How does God forgive me when I redo the same mistake?
1: Okay. Uh well, first of all, how many times do you need to go to confession? There is no strict schedule. Generally what the church asks is that we confess our sins once a year. Mhm. And so it's often done during Lent prior to Easter, but once a year is really the minimal schedule. If we don't do that, I mean, are we willing to admit to ourselves that we're sinners or not? Hmm. You know, and so going to confession is a way of acknowledging in humility that we all need to say we're sorry sometimes. And it probably is going to come up at least once a year. (laughs) So once a year. uh, I try and go to confession personally once a month. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I'm visiting my mom, she lives in another city. So I'll take time to go to a church there to go to confession. Or uh, if I'm visiting friends back in Montreal, I'll go to St. Joseph's Oratory, a great place, confessions regularly available. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are, that's what I like to do if I can, once a month. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find it really helps my soul. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you could go more than that if you really feel the need sometimes we're in the in a spiritual battle a struggle with some kind of temptation and going back to confession more frequently within this context of that struggle that may be a worthwhile thing although it's important to remember that uh, sometimes people get very wrapped up in going to confession in the sense that it causes them more anxiety than relieves it. And so it's good to, if you want to go more than once a month, let's say once a week or something, that's fine too. But that's where uh, talking it out with uh, an experienced spiritual director might be helpful just to make sure that we're not going there, you know, motivated from uh, anxiety. We're going there motivated really for the love of God. So the question then is, that that puts context for the second question that you asked, which is, I keep saying the same stuff. How can God still forgive me? And this is actually a really good question that I get a lot, because it shows, when we're doing that, everybody has that experience, by the way. Anybody who's a regular user of confession has that experience, where you go, maybe you go for the first time in 10 years, and you just say a whole lot of stuff, and you, you sort of clean out the spiritual closet you know Mm. and then we we go back on a more regular basis and pretty soon we discover that what we're saying are the same things that we said the last time it can be a little embarrassing at at least for ourselves and people sometimes wonder well does this mean i'm sincere like what you know if if i confessing and i just go back and i do it again and You know, even though we promise to do our best not to do it again, we wind up doing it again. And so we can start to doubt ourselves. So first thing, relax. (laughs) This experience is very common, and it's an important sign that a person is transitioning to a new level of maturity in their spiritual journey. Because when we go to confession for the first time in a long time, we're confessing our sin. And we're still technically doing that when we go to confession, but we're saying the same things. So we're still confessing our sins, but more than that, because we're saying the same things over and over again, we're actually starting to confess our sinfulness—not just our sins. Huh. That we we have to look at this as a time of self-revelation, as a time where we realize because you know different people will have different things that they bring I have absolutely no interest in gambling okay I don't know why I I went to a casino once in my life when I was younger I was bored to tears I was <laughs> so boring I thought why why do people come here again? oh
0: I'm the same I'm the same <laughs> you know
1: now but 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 there are people and perhaps people listening to this podcast for whom they would be like oh no you don't get it Bishop like it's <laughs> so exciting and Like that is their avenue of temptation, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, having heard many confessions in my life, you know, substance abuse of various sorts, uh, sexual attractions of all kinds, uh, you know, some more uh, out there than others, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities. Paths that get it's like channels that get carved into our soul. You know, when water flows, it it carves a channel and then more water flows and it carves a deeper channel and more water flows. And pretty soon you're going from a trickle to a stream to a river to a torrent. You know, Mm. sin is like that. And so by having the same sins coming up over and over again, what it's actually showing is where are the channels in our soul that temptation has an easier time of getting at. And so we want to explore those not explore the sins by doing it. We want to explore what is the nature not just of the the sin but of the channel that it is carved. And so very often what we find is that there are sins I call them dandelion sins. <laughs> they're they're sins that pop up like dandelions <laughs> on your lawn, yes. you know. And the thing about a dandelion, if you've ever tried to pull a dandelion, is if you can get it when it's small, you can pull the whole thing out. If you wait till it grows big, then the roots go deep and you have to go down, dig down deep and pull out the whole root or else it's just going to pop again in the same place. That little bit you leave is going to grow back. Sin is like that. Uh, If if it's the kind of sin that has roots, it's just going to keep coming back until we can dig it out by the roots. But you can't just pull on it to pull it out. You've got to loosen the soil around it. You've got to, Pull slowly and carefully, deliberately, sin is like that once it sets roots. And so by having the same sin over and over again, it helps us to identify where are the deep dandelions. Mm. And then we give ourselves patience. Every time we go to confession, it's not just about trying to confess and it's done. It's it's another step in loosening the soil. And it may be that the solution to solving a particular habitual sin is not attacking the sin, it's loosening the soil. So very often we say one of the ways you confront the uh, the evil of sin is by growing in a virtue. You, you progress in the opposite virtue and it helps you tackle the evil of sin. Mm-hmm. So that's just a few points. So anybody is saying, I keep saying the same thing and does that make me a hypocrite or something? No, it doesn't. You're, it's actually a good sign in some ways because it shows you're reaching another level of spiritual maturity. And I hope I hope your confessor, the one you go to for confession, can help you through that. And often it helps to, to go to the same confessor. It's tougher because we keep saying the <laughs> yeah, same exactly. thing. We feel embarrassed. <laughs> but if you go to the confessor and you say, look, I, I have this thing. It keeps coming back. You're going to hear me say the same thing. But I want you to help me figure out how to pull out the dandelion. Even mm-hmm. use my analogy. You're welcome to do it. <laughs> say, i listen to this crazy bishop on a podcast go for it uh priests generally are very happy to receive that sort of uh that, that sort of uh request and be able mm-hmm. to offer that assistance
0: mm-hmm. oh so beautiful thank you again wow okay let's another question Yep. can we pray for money
1: can we pray for money as in we'd like to have more exactly um well, one of the prayers in the Our Father is give us this day our daily bread. And so it's not praying for money specifically, it's praying for the things that we need.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, what's interesting about that phrase is it's give us this day our daily bread. And so it's about saying, give me what I need. Uh, even Jesus said, you know, don't, don't worry, your Heavenly Father knows all the good things that you need. And so it's okay to to seek the things that we need for a, a sustained life. It's normal, and certainly if we have responsibilities for other people, like parents lose their mm-hmm. job, you know, how many times have I gotten a request, please pray for me? I lost my job. I have to find another job. They're not praying for money, but they're praying for the opportunity to earn money. Yeah, which is fine, you know. So if you're praying to win the lottery so you can buy a Lexus. <laughs> you know you could pray for that, but don't be surprised if the answer is no. You know they say God answers all prayers, but sometimes the answer is no mm-hmm. Jesus, it, when we read the uh, the New Testament, it says clearly that part of the reason why certain prayers are answered are not answered is because we don't pray rightly because we're praying to satisfy our own desires.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, praying for money it, it's about the motivation behind it. And let's not forget that uh, money is often seen as a substitute for status or being successful in the eyes of others and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So, you know, when we're praying for money, what are we really praying I mean, about?
0: Exactly. What is the why yeah. behind that? Yeah.
1: Let's not forget, we we are members of a church that believes in the vow of poverty. So, willingly living a simple life precisely to not get trapped in these things. Because there's a saying, the things that you own can end up owning you. I, I learned this, if I could just share a personal story. So I was never a big fashion icon, but <laughs> when I was when I was working, uh, my first job actually, before I, I even started university,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I worked in an ice cream store. <sighs> Baskin-Robbins, scooping yes! ice cream. Yes. That was a great job. <laughs> and one day, one day, the salesman came in, and he had been in the, in Montreal for a big product convention, and he wanted to get rid of his samples before he flew back to Europe. So he was selling stuff cheap, and there was this leather jacket, it was super nice, you know, like designer fancy schmancy. And uh, i never owned a fancy coat before, and it was really inexpensive, so I bought it, and you know, people were like, wow, that's a nice coat. Nice coat, Tom. You know, really nice. I started university that fall and I, you know, I wore my coat to campus and, you know, it's really mm-hmm. good. You know, when you look good and you know you do, you got that <laughs> sort of swagger, you know. So I, I, I go to uh, the library and I, you know, I put my backpack down and I get mm-hmm. out my books and my pencil and I put my coat over the chair. I go off to get some books in the stacks. And there's a sign that says, do not leave your valuables unattended. Mm. And I suddenly felt fear that my coat might disappear. Mm. And I had never felt that about anything I owned before. (laughs) But this, and I realized I was attached to it. And Mm. it, it was an attachment in my heart. And right away, I thought, okay. You know, like I identified it and I'm not going to fall into that trap again. I still own that (gasps) coat. Really? I bring bring it with every time I've moved. I pack it and I bring it with me because it's a physical reminder of a lesson I learned when I was 19 years old.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. It's a good reminder. You see, visually, it's a good reminder, too. Wow.
1: Got to let it go. It's good to have stuff, but it's not good to be attached.
0: Well said, can a Catholic be oh cremated? That's a question I often i like i like it pops out. I do not know can a Catholic be cremated
1: the yeah, the short answer is yes um the uh the tradition is to be buried
0: hmm
1: We want to follow the example of Jesus in all things, and he was buried. you know, took down his body, laid him in a tomb, and that's the common Jewish custom. And the reason it was burial is because of the hope in the resurrection.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so very often cultures and traditions where cremation is the norm—that's what you normally see—you have a dualistic view of the body, so that the, what really counts is the soul, but the body is, you know, just a temporary resting place for the soul,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so it doesn't really matter what you do. Uh, Catholic point of view—that's not it. Our our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The, the human body is worthy of dignity. And so we even treat the deceased body with dignity. When when a person comes to church for their funeral, yeah. we receive the coffin at the door of the church. We put a garment over it, a pall, mm-hmm. which is a white garment. It, it's symbolic of baptism. We bless it with holy water. You know, we're honoring the body as place, uh, a temple of the Spirit. So the preference is to be buried. However, in the course of history, there have been times when, for example, due to plague or or,
2: some Mm -hmm. other
1: situation, mass death, where they couldn't bury them. They couldn't bury them fast enough or it was too dangerous to touch the bodies for an extended period. So so they would cremate. And Mm -hmm. so we've always, or burials at sea for sailors. So there are possibilities other than burial in the ground but Mm -hmm. it's still the the preferred way preferred way yeah for the reasons i just explained
0: yes okay as a catholic how does one deal with their child who was brought up catholic but ends up falling in love with someone who is not catholic but they decide to not get the catholic root
1: uh catholic root meaning like follow the the catholic
0: I guess wedding oh, ceremony exactly. Or? what what is the Catholic, you know, faith, marriage, the sacrament, and all of that.
1: Okay. Um, well, first of all, the Catholic Church doesn't believe that there is such a thing as Catholic marriage. This surprises people sometimes, but we actually believe that marriage as a as an institution goes back to the first human beings. Mm-hmm. Jesus didn't invent marriage, he elevated it to the level of a sacrament, but He didn't invent marriage. And so the Catholic Church honors and respects the marriage traditions of the whole world, of all religions and even no religion, as long as those marriage traditions follow the pattern that we believe was the marriage pattern in ancient times. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, the marriage pattern of fidelity, uh, you know, monogamy, one man, one woman, Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. So there's a natural marriage that we honor and respect. If a Catholic chooses to marry a non-Catholic, what we would want to see is that the Catholic isn't making this choice in a way that rejects the Catholic faith. So it's a compromise, but a compromise is not the same thing as a rejection. So I have accompanied many couples who were preparing to be married to Protestants, to Orthodox, to Jews. In fact, when I was in Montreal, I think I had the lock on the Catholic Zoroastrian wedding market. Uh, The Zoroastrians, and and this is an interesting detail, Zoroastrian faith, you can't convert into the faith. You have to be born into it. Mm. And so over time, you can understand that the, the group has shrunk in numbers across the world Mm -hmm. considerably so they're very strong on wanting to preserve their tradition so a, a young woman came to me and she said i want to marry this guy who's zoroastrian uh but he's insisting on it being a zoroastrian ceremony what do i do i said well get married in a zoroastrian ceremony it's not a problem what you do is you ask the permission of the church you ask for what's called the dispensation and basically, you say, I would like to get married in this other ceremony. Here are the reasons why. Can I do that? And then you get a letter back saying, sure, go ahead. Mm. The simple fact of asking is already respectful. It shows that you're not turning your back on your Catholic tradition. And so I had the honor of attending the ceremony. I didn't do it, but I attended. I was an official mm. witness. It was you know, done in someone's home. The Zoroastrian priests were there. So it is possible. If if she had not gotten the permission, I would not have gone because mm-hmm. it would have led to confusion. But my presence there meant a lot of people asked this question, and so I got to give the same explanation I'm giving now. And so it actually her wedding served as an occasion to clarify an issue for a lot of people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the issue really is about: is this a way to reject the faith,
2: uh-huh.
1: or is this a way to uh, To simply, you know, actually seek the blessing of the faith, even if you're getting married in the ceremony other than a Catholic ceremony.
0: You know, the second question, the other question that comes out right now, I think it's related a little bit. It says the new normal is not to get the new normal. (laughs) is not to get married and live together first, you know, to make sure it works out before they commit to each other. How is this seen from a Catholic point of view?
1: So, in other words, cohabitating uh, as man and wife without being man and wife yes. as a kind of trial process, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. maybe not even. Um, you're right. This is common. It It's a new normal, but I, I don't think it's normal because normal implies it's a norm. And, in fact, it's the opposite of a norm. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no, there's nothing normative about it. So. The. uh the short answer, obviously, is from the Catholic point of view: uh, no, live together as man and wife. If you're man and wife, if you're not man and wife, then you know, and you're you're forced to be in uh, common circumstances. Live together as brother and sister, but not as man and wife.
0: Oh! Oh! Wow! First time I hear that, brothers yeah. and
1: sisters. Wow! Yeah. yeah. Now the uh, you see the thing is. People, people can uh, you know live times of great mutual support and affection. but when we talk about living together as man and wife, we're usually referring to their, their sexual
2: mm-hmm. cooperation
1: mm-hmm. as well. And that's where you know people get kind of hung up on it. But what we find is that people who don't cohabitate and who don't even if they're not cohabitating, if they if they are remaining chaste before their marriage and also during, then their marriages have a much higher success rate.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the simple truth is that the the perception is, if we try this out, experiment as man and wife, and then thanks to that experiment, figure determine it's actually going to work, then we get married, we should have a better chance of not getting divorced. We should have a better chance of a happy marriage. But the data... Honestly, the sociological data does not bear that out. It shows the exact opposite. Mm. And, and that's, you know, the question then is does a marriage ceremony matter? Mm-hmm. You know, and I I believe it does. And I've seen it make a difference. You know, I, I've journeyed with couples who lived together for years. And then, you know, I would I called it my annual conversation. I would say, okay, we're gonna talk about this once a year. And I'd say, <laughs> I tell them. Listen, I do weddings.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I don't. I don't charge money, you know. So <laughs> if you want to get married, you don't need a big frou frou yeah. of, of five hundred oh. people. The, the number of people you need for a valid Catholic wedding is five: the minister, the couple, and their witnesses. Yes, that's it. So mm-hmm. you can go. You can add more if you want. You can go up to ten. You can go up to a thousand. Who cares? The, the point is, you can have it as simple as you want, and it's still a valid Catholic wedding. Yeah. And so uh, I've done some, I think the smallest wedding I ever did was, uh, let's see, me, the couple, their witnesses, her parents, seven.
0: Like, so, we don't need that big wedding. It's not necessary. I mean, if you want to or, go ahead, but it's or, not. Or
1: get together with all your friends. That's fine, you know, but honestly, <laughs> you don't need to. Spend spend the Bam. money on the dress and on, on the all that stuff unfortunately marriage gets tied to status becomes a status symbol and that is not from the church that is from the world that is from broader society so if if you are anybody listening to this you're thinking oh you know married i don't know we can't afford it of course you can afford it
2: yes yes
1: you know, yes. ma- marriage doesn't have to cost more than a hundred bucks, not even. <laughs> not even, not even sacraments. I, I mean, we ask for a contribution, but yeah. technically they're free, you know, so <laughs> don't give me that. It's not true. It's not true that you're getting brainwashed by a society that has been publishing modern bride magazine and mm-hmm. people read it, you know, or those similar magazines and they think that's what it's got to be. No, that's nonsense
0: and it's a beautiful journey
1: keep it simple follow the journey honestly uh, but but for those cohabitating i hate to tell you this but according to all the data you're sabotaging your future happiness i wish it wasn't so i wish i could tell you something different and there are other factors too that sabotage future happiness another one which wasn't asking the question, but as actually the use of uh, artificial instead of natural means of contraception.
2: Mm-hmm. If it's not
1: the r- if it's not the right time to get pregnant, there are ways of avoiding pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Some are artificial; they rely on technology like pills or, pills. or plastic, uh, latex, you know, all kinds of things. Some are natural that respect the cycles of the woman's body. Mm-hmm. Turns out that people who use the natural forms have. It requires dialogue with the couple, and so it actually creates a circumstance whereby their sexual relationship solidifies their overall relationship. Mm. Um, Faith commitment, too. Practice of a faith. Praying together. The, the The people who have some degree of common religious practice and who practice natural forms of family planning, their divorce rate is so small as to be almost negligible. No, nobody talks about this but the divorce is such a tragedy like nobody little girls will dream of the day they get married nobody in their right mind dreams of the day they when they're, they're gonna get divorced and They think mm-hmm. you know if i'm lucky i'll get married and if i'm really lucky we'll get divorced after like nobody <laughs> thinks that way and yet we're being sold a, a bill of goods all based on a principle of autonomy that isn't respectful of reality Mm. anyway i'll I'll stop there but
0: it's you know what we're talking about you know i I heard that um, the, the,
1: the question was what does the church think of this i don't want to come across as the the mean bishop who is like telling people what to do or not do i'm telling you there is a path to happiness and if you want to have a greatest chance of success and happiness there is a wisdom here that is worth listening to and and if you're saying to yourself well that's fine for other people but for us it'll be different danger mm. that's you know humility you need humility,
2: humility. anyway yeah
0: the next question <laughs> i saw yep. i mean actually this i i'm actually surprised and happy because you know this person i, I think she She's brave, you know, I signed a I signed a confession post on social media, I guess, that masturbation is a sin. But we teach the kids in school that this is like totally normal. Now, these questions are hard for a Catholic to ask and get answered because it's so embarrassing, but yet very, very out there for people like pornography is very much publicized and teens and younger are very quick. Like it's, it's quick access to all through website, the movies and TV shows now have very, very intense scenes too, as well. How can I deal with all this?
1: Well, the the connection between masturbation and pornography that is brought up in the question is very important because, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, por- pornography stimulates a part of the brain, a very primitive part of the brain that uh, is seeking release of some kind, but it's more than release. It's, uh, it, you know, the, the 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 sexual impulse, when you look at the animal kingdom, for example, brings animals together and mating for the sake of offspring, that sort of thing. So we have an animal nature, you know, kind of understandable that we would have sexual attractions.
2: Pornography, what pornography does
1: is it, it provides, people think it's an outlet, but it's, it's more of a substitute. So what we're finding with pornography is that people, first of all, can be very consumed by pornography. Uh, they, it becomes an addiction.
2: Mm. And
1: any, any compulsive habit, any addiction reduces our freedom. You know, people who smoke and they say, well, yeah, I smoke, but I can quit any time sure try it (laughs) yeah i drink but i can stop anytime okay well try it see you know uh the season of lent in our catholic tradition is a time for giving things up
2: Mm -hmm.
1: for two reasons in in part to test whether or not the things we think we can let go of we really can Mm -hmm. so and and that's not even related to sinful matter so leaving aside the the spiritual question of sin around these pornography and masturbation. I mean, honestly, pornography, does anybody honestly think that this is a form of respect, you know, of the other person? I mean, really, you know, this is, this is related to the intimacy Mm. of, uh, of, you know, couples and it's suddenly on display, uh, for the world. No, there's something there. And what we find as well is that people who start to go down the pornography rabbit hole, they wind up unable to, or increasingly having difficulty having normal sexual relations and even just simple human relations with other people. They have difficulty not sexualizing, those things. and so it it's it's gradually corrosive to the human spirit. It's true. It's all around us in a way that we can even get habituated to. It's mm-hmm. like breathing. It's like breathing polluted air. I lived in downtown Montreal for 14 years. <laughs> then I moved to Sault Ste. Marie. I moved to Sault Ste. Marie where it's fresh air all yeah. the time. <laughs> I go I go back to Montreal to visit. And I'm like, Ugh, why does the air taste? Air is not supposed to taste like something. So there's a detox. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're in a culture that is very polluted in this way. And there's a kind of spiritual detox that we need. And it's not easy. It's not easy in the context that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with regards specifically to, uh, to masturbation and well pornography as well, ultimately, it's about we're, we're seeking, if it's merely a, being used as a coping mechanism,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, are there no other coping mechanisms we can use? But as well, at a certain point, it's really hard to disassociate the fantasy element from the physical element. And so in a sense, we're we're having sex in our minds, even if not with someone else. And again, you know, what we think becomes, you know, thoughts become ideas, ideas stimulate emotions, emotions motivate behaviors, behaviors become habits, habits become character, character evolves into a personality, all of those things. And so I realized that in schools we're telling young people this is normal
2: mm-hmm.
1: because because we're trying to destigmatize but at the same time you know like we want to be able to tell kids look you can talk to us about anything mm-hmm. the bottom line is kids are not going to talk about these things with adults no matter mm-hmm. how much we try and normalize it i wonder to what extent we normalize this and other things not Really for the kids, but to make ourselves feel better, you know, to convince ourselves of something. Anyway, I'll I'll stop there. But uh, I I believe in the wisdom of the church on this. Having heard confessions, I know that it's a struggle. Pornography, masturbation, all those things. But there are a lot of people in the secular world who are figuring this out. There's a Reddit group called uh, NoFAP. NoFAP and uh it's that's a slang term it's somewhat coarse to describe masturbation but it's people who have realized like i don't i don't have control of myself
0: anymore Mm -hmm.
1: so they actually come together anonymously to encourage each other to maintain a at least a more chaste lifestyle in that respect
0: yeah exactly exactly i think also you know with we spoke you spoke a little bit about you know a spiritual guide uh also that you know can help you know when we're talking about our sins of course and all that but also i don't know what you think about you know going to seek for spiritual guidance concerning that for people who really are let's say stuck in that
1: yeah and there are there are um and again it's not just masturbation Uh, there are people who have more severe forms uh, people who regularly frequent prostitutes for example who, who are paying for sex and they can't stop it's almost like a gambling addiction type of thing it involves money at the same time you know um the there are services available online uh, there used to be one called reclaim sexual health which was very much rooted in the teaching of the church uh mm-hmm. it combined good psychology with spirituality and an mm-hmm. understanding of the the brain's physiology and, and how all of that works um I know Matt Fred, I believe his name, has written books on the the epidemic of porn and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So there are resources out there. And I would, you know, I'd say, look, if if you're finding yourself trapped in some kind of shame, guess what? That's already a sign that something's out of order because you should not be carrying around shame. One solution is to try and normalize the things that make us feel ashamed. Okay. Mm. But is that really a solution? You know, or is it maybe, again, when things are compulsive, when they are reducing our freedom, the church believes strongly in freedom. It's not the freedom to do whatever we want. It's actually freedom from compulsions, addictions, enslavement. Mm. And so that's the kind of freedom that we promote most strongly. And so, uh, you know, don't be, don't hesitate to try and follow that path. And the fact that it may be challenging, guess what? It's a sign that you need to be on that path even more. And we're with you.
0: Exactly. There's so many questions. I'm just gonna, um, take two last of them. Cause I know you, I'm not going to take all of your time and there's many questions I wish we can take like more time with, but let's choose two. Okay.
1: Well, let's do a part two.
0: Let's do. Yeah. a part two. One one here, the first one. Uh, this one, actually, I think everybody lives the situation. I'm a good person. I always try to do the right thing. <laughs> but you always, you always come across someone who, try, who tries to break you, makes you angry by saying lies about you or trying to make you look bad to the point where you try to avoid this person because she, she brings nothing good in your life. But, unfortunately, but this person is family. How do you deal with someone who is so negative and wants to bring you down or brings up past mistakes that you have done but made peace with and ask for forgiveness, but this person is so angry at the world? How do you accept someone or try to make it work so the family can be at peace? When you're around the person, she's just very angry. Yeah.
1: I, I find it interesting that the gender of the person that's being described as a woman, she. <laughs> She did this. She did that yeah. uh okay we have to we have to break this down a bit. First of all, there's how we deal with it in our own hearts and ourselves, and how do we deal with the other person
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, First of all, there are people out there who have a malevolent personality type, people who are narcissistic, people who are antisocial, otherwise known as psychopaths. They say at any point, three percent of the population psychopath really yeah so about one in every 33 people you meet could be clinically diagnosed as a psychopath now most psychopaths they're not criminals Uh not they're not violent psychopathy means they lack empathy and there may be certain professions where a lack of empathy could help A, a classic example that's given is surgeons You know, somebody who has to literally cut into somebody else's body and cause damage. If they were overly empathic, they would never be able to do their job. So people who have that cold, calculating, clinical mindset, very often, you know, they may tend, they may have elements of that personality. But when you combine psychopathy with narcissistic personality disorders and other things, and it just creates a toxic cocktail, or people who they... They may not have the emotion of empathy. There can be people who don't have the emotion of empathy, but intellectually at least, they know what is right and wrong. They respect it. But for those for whom they don't have that, and they also don't have the emotion of empathy, then you wind up seeing behaviors that can be very negative. And mm-hmm. among among men, psychopathy often comes out more in uh, physical destructive behaviors. Among women you often see it in the form of reputation destruction or shaming. Mm-hmm. So the classic mean girls phenomenon, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's why I say it's interesting that the question had the word she. Hey, yeah. Eh? So uh, the bad news is if somebody else is a psychopath, uh, you can't reason with them, you know, appealing to their humanity and their emotional side. Don't you understand how much you hurt me? Mm-hmm. That won't help. It just doesn't mm-hmm. help. So in those cases, and if you have truly a destructive, malevolent personality type before you, then it may be that avoidance is the best thing.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And if because it's family, you can't avoid, then you know, usually what we want to do is limit contact in some way. And it, it's very difficult because we can think, well, it's family, we should be together, we should, you know, all these things that we should. And it's true. But you know what? At a certain point, you just have to. Just have to cut contact and not feel guilty about it. You know that might be the the best thing. It, you know, for yourself, it's it's one thing to make yourself into a bit of a punching bag, you know, or, or at least accept the slings and arrows from others. It's a lot. It's a lot harder when, let's say, you have kids and you're bringing your kids around Aunt So and So, who is toxic. You know, you you have to make the right choices for the people you care about. And I always tell people, well, if you wouldn't expose your kids to that. Why are you exposing yourself to that? So it's okay to have some distance with toxic personality types. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that the person is not the toxic personality type. Those are truly in the minority, like the true personality disorders. But it might be, that it's not that they're mean, it's that they're angry.
2: Mm.
1: they're working out some kind of anger and anger is usually related to some degree of grief
2: Mm.
1: some degree of loss some degree that something's missing and and we wind up being targeted for that as a priest i get that all the time people who are terribly angry at god the church and what have you and you know so i wear my collar somewhere and you know, in public, and suddenly I have a total stranger coming up to me, tearing a strip off of me for nothing I ever did. Yeah. You know that happens. Yeah. But but you know, it's part of the job because they have an anger that they they haven't processed. And sometimes I'm able to sit down and talk with them. And they're not doing it to score points. They're not doing it for the the joy of hurting someone else. They're not psychopaths. Just angry. Yeah. For reasons they may not understand themselves. And so that has to be treated different then you know uh and but those people sometimes reason is possible appeal to humanity is possible and so th- that's a whole other approach that one can take um now internally when someone hurts us we'll get angry that's a spontaneous mm-hmm. common reaction or we'll feel ashamed there, there's a grief that we feel when someone else hurts us. And we can, as a reaction, become very hard. We can even become vengeful. But, you know, really what we should be doing is choosing to forgive. And the best example of that is Jesus on the cross. Mm. What, did he, what did he say for all those who, who put him there and who jeered at him, made fun of him? Like they stripped away every element of dignity he could have possibly had. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So if we can arrive at that point, Mm -hmm. look, life is going to have hard times. There are times that there's going to be people who want to put us on a cross and they may actually get us there. That sucks. But. Their issues are theirs. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: For us, how we are going to react to them is ours. Mm -hmm. And. It starts with forgiveness and prayer. Now forgiveness doesn't mean we become all chummy chummy and friends. You can't do that with the psychopaths. <laughs>
2: don't,
1: don't don't try. Don't try. And it's not a failure if you try and it doesn't work. It's not a failure. It's just not possible. What we can, forgiveness ultimately is not about necessarily the full restoration of the relationship we would like to have. It's about at a very minimal level saying to ourselves that person that person hurt me. They they owe me an apology, but I release them from that debt. I, I they don't owe me any.
0: And from what I see here in the question, it's family, you know. So I don't well, know if that person like see that woman because he's a she yeah. often, you know.
1: Well, that's it, and you know it. It's sometimes more difficult because. As I said, it's hard to avoid seeing the person because of family issues. Mm-hmm. But very often when you have a, a toxic personality within a family, um, the rest of the family, they find ways to kind of deal with it. You know, they <laughs> they, they develop sayings, you know, like, oh, well, you know, she's just like that. And they kind of blow it off. and <laughs> Oh, don't let her get to you. You know, that that sticks and stones may break my bone. You know, it just becomes, I won't say a kind of a joke in the family, but, you know not a big deal. And and to be honest, we ourselves sometimes we need to work on our own sensitivity. We don't want to become hard, but at the same time, if the people with no empathy, very often the people they're able to exploit the most are the people with who are highly empathic because they just absorb all the emotions around them. So we need to have a balance in our lives. I don't know if this response is at all helpful, but... Uh, I hope so.
0: I, I, For me, I mean, it's just amazing. I just look at the time here, and I think we're going to we do...
1: Got one more?
0: Yeah, we got one more, and then it's... We have to do a part two. We have to do, because I'm like, look at the, uh, all the question. When right. you have time, to, uh, Bishop Dowd. But yeah. one more. <clears throat> sure. What can we answer to people outside our Catholic faith that say that the church is discriminatory towards women? Women can't be priests. Women can be bishops, cardinals. And I used to be very upset that as as a woman, I will never be able to be a priest. But I have decided to trust the church. But when I get confronted by non-believers and I talk to them, well, I get tempted and I don't know what to answer really.
1: Okay. Uh, this is not an easy question. And, uh, boy, you saved the, the trickiest one for last. <laughs> but. Remember I said at the beginning, the Catholic faith requires us to turn up our brain, not to shut it off? Well, Mm. this is one where we have to turn up our brain to 110%. Mm. So the, the first thing to understand is that the church does believe, based on human experience and the word of scripture, but human experience, that humans and most of the kingdoms of animals and even plants are gender binary. There are only two kinds of gametes that allow for sexual reproduction, male and female. And so there is a complementarity. No woman can have a baby without the cooperation of some male sperm somewhere mm-hmm. coming from somewhere. Uh, no man can have a baby without the cooperation of a woman. I mean, it's just the way it is. So the uh, this this binary quality, of human existence, we know that there are people who don't fit neatly into one category or the other. but the binary quality of human existence on a purely physiological level for the sake of the continuation of the species is across the board, you know, in all the various animal kingdoms. Um, there are there's cloning that exists in nature. But for humans, no, this is what we've got. And the church sees that as part of, the way that humans image God.
2: Mm.
1: When you read the story of the creation of Adam and Eve when you go to chapter one in Genesis, not before you get to the story of Adam being created out of the dirt yes. of the earth the, the first chapter it says God says, let us make man in our own image and so God created man in his image. man is a generic term means humanity. God created human beings in his image. Male and female, he created them. We know nothing about our first parents. Even the names Adam and Eve are not actually their names. Those Mm -hmm. are symbolic names because Adam means from the earth, Adamah, the the clay, the soil. We don't know if they were tall or short. We don't know if they were fat or thin. We don't know if their eyes were blue or brown. We don't know if their skin Mm -hmm. color, hair color. We know nothing about them physiologically except that they were male and female. And that being male and female is part of the image of God. This idea of each is an autonomous individual, but there's a complementarity. And so that is rooted in our our physical nature, and it's rooted in our spiritual nature. We come to Jesus. Jesus came among us as a man. Is that because God flipped a coin in heaven and said, Well, he's got to come as either a male or female? So, you know, we'll see what it is. Oh, it's a boy. Or is there something about gender that is expressive mm-hmm. of spiritual realities? Okay. Our souls. Are our souls male or female? It's interesting. The modern world tends to see the soul if it admits its existence at all, tends to see it as unisex gender is limited to the body alone and this unisex mentality it's actually it, if it's if it's only one gender then it's all possible genders because it's kind of a blank slate and so this idea of lgbtq that 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 you know well 2S and plus yes you know but but behind that is a philosophy that assumes the soul if it exists at all is not tied to the body the gender of the body. And the soul self-expression are two different things. Well, from a Catholic point of view, and in tune with another school of philosophy, um, we believe that the soul can have gender. In fact, does. And the proof of this is, quite honestly, when we consider people who have died Mm -hmm. and we consider them in heaven, are they still male or female? You know, do they... Do we think of our grandmother who passed away as our grandmom, or do we think of her as our generic grandparent who is now sexless because she's a separated soul?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, it, just spontaneously, you know, you realize mm-hmm. there's a spontaneous belief that gender as an. Our, her soul is not tall or short. Her soul is not fat or thin. Her mm-hmm. soul does not have blue eyes or brown eyes, but her soul is still expressive of a gender identity. And so, Gender is really at the root of a great many things in the church. Now, the idea that we discriminate against women, first of all, discrimination means the ability to distinguish.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: there can be forms of discrimination that aren't unjust. We don't let 10-year-olds drive cars. That's not unjust. It's related mm-hmm. to, their, to the nature of who they are. With the Protestant Reformation came an idea that priesthood is a job. It's a profession. Um, that there isn't a pattern of ordination tied to human nature. That Because we believe that when someone is ordained, their soul actually changes. There's an imprint left on the soul that is permanent to configure them to Christ, the high priest.
2: Mm -hmm. So again, if you
1: don't see ordination as affecting the soul, it's an assignment from the church, but it's not, Uh, an imprint on the soul then yeah of course it doesn't matter you know and there are a great many vocations in the church that don't have that imprint on the soul and which are open to both men and women Um, that's not a problem the 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 thing about the church though is when we look the argument that we discriminate unjustly in the end points the finger at jesus himself Because Jesus picked only men as his apostles. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get around that? Well, you could say, well, Jesus didn't have any choice. Really? (laughs) Is that where we want to go? I mean, (laughs) like, uh, honestly, you just be, you know, if that's where you want to go, just be honest and say that Jesus wasn't really the son of God. You know, (laughs) like, yeah. it, it's, you know, it's tough to get around that. Um, and so what we find is the argument that it's there's an injustice involved is tied usually not to the question of the vocation. It's much more of a postmodern argument
2: mm-hmm.
1: where where profession is seen as an expression of power. There's mm-hmm. no question there is spiritual power. No question there's spiritual power associated with those vocations. Um, but there's spiritual power in other vocations. In the early church, for example, in the, the time of the early church, women had to get married. Mm-hmm. They just had to. Uh, a widow, an unmarried woman, was gonna be destitute. Mm-hmm. You know, an unmarried girl, you know, could be kept in her father's home, but at a certain point, her mm-hmm. parents would arrange for her to get married. I mean, she was getting married.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so what, what does that do to free will? Remember I said we don't believe in enslavement, where we're promoting freedom? So in the early church, we read this in letters in the Bible, the New Testament. The church created an institution called the Order of Virgins, and later also the Order of Widows. Virgin means an unmarried young woman, and a widow, obviously, an older woman who was married. And because in the the culture of the time, a woman, the idea of the autonomous individual didn't really exist. You had to be part of a family, and if you weren't part of a family, you could join an order of some kind. So for men, they could join the military, their unit. For the women, the church created these orders so that the church itself became the the protector, the the place mm-hmm. of the living out of their autonomy and their mission, if they. Chose not to get married. So, in other words, for the first time in history, we have the possibility given to women to say no.
2: Hmm. That comes from Christianity. The Mm -hmm.
1: idea that women, like it was, it's not that women, you know, weren't able to say no before. They wanted to, but they weren't able to. It was just unthinkable. It was outside of people's categories. It's within the church that we see marriage emerging as a choice of the couple, not of the families.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's in the church that we see women being told you can say no, which 2,000 years later leads to laws outlying things like rape, you know, and abuse and all that sort of thing, because we recognize there's a respect for the autonomy of the individual. So I have a hard time saying that Because we have gendered roles in the church, it's necessarily unjust discrimination. When throughout our history, who were the first educated women in in Western society? Honestly, they were women Mm
2: -hmm.
1: who were, the closer you were to the church, the more likely you were to be educated, the more likely you were to be powerful, Mm -hmm. Uh, unless you were in a royal family. (laughs) (laughs) But if if you didn't have the benefit of birth, you know, the closer you were to faith, the closer you were to all of those possibilities. So I just don't buy it. Now, this is a long explanation for a complex subject. (laughs) Uh, And I do think that we have tied the exercise of power in our church too closely to the ministry, particularly of priests and bishops. Mm Um, I think there's it's possible for that to be broadened without without replacing, without, you know, neglecting the role of priests and bishops as uh sort of a, a council of last resort. But I do think there's this whole movement of synodality is something which I support because it's recognition that the Holy Spirit is given to all men and women in the church. So we have to dialogue and listen to each other and discern together our path as a church. But um yeah, I, I just, so there's there's work to be done, definitely. And and different cultures have different ideas of the role, gender roles of men and women. And it's a big church. We've been around 2,000 years. It's possible for things to evolve. But uh, I just don't buy the idea that gender distinction is gender discrimination. I just don't buy it at all. I think that idea is actually pretty toxic for our culture.
0: Hmm. Something really interesting I saw a video, I think it, it was Pope Francis. Who said, what, like uh, Spanish, right? His first language is Spanish. He said, yeah. so he said, the church, La Iglesia,
1: La Iglesia,
0: is women. Church is women. La Iglesia is es, es mujer. It's women. And now yeah. I'm like, hey, let me hear that. He's like, see, sí, dice. La Iglesia es femenino. La Iglesia. We cannot yes. say, so the church. Well, in English, it's a little bit tough then to, well, but, <laughs> to but you're but right in Spanish, and it's french it's like la iglesia is feminino of course he was going on with theological terms and all that uh, move forward but it makes sense what he said
1: well let, let me just comment on that if you read the old testament the people of israel are described by god in the words of the prophets are described as god's bride mm. god's wife the people as a whole are the wife. He is the husband. So when Jesus comes, he describes himself as the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Mm -hmm. That He calls himself the bridegroom, and the idea of the church, the new Israel, as the bride comes out very strongly in the letters of St. Paul. It comes out strongly in the book of Revelation, which calls the the final appearing of Jesus in glory as the wedding feast. Mm -hmm. So these images are all there. And and so, yeah, God didn't just flip a coin. The masculinity of Jesus is intentional. What's interesting is biologically. There's, remember, I said in the church, <laughs> we we don't turn away from science. There's a uh, a biological principle called nature favors females. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: you can actually see this in the film Jurassic Park of all things. Okay where one of the scientists in the movie says, inherently, we all start out as female from the moment of our conception. Mm -hmm. And then there is a hormonal trigger that causes the developing person to resolve into a male. But if that trigger doesn't happen, it's usually activated by the X chromosome, but it could be environmental.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: If it doesn't happen for whatever reason, then even if you have an X and a Y chromosome, you'll emerge as female. If it happens in a way that's, you know, partial or somewhat confused, then you could wind up with an intersex situation. But the simple truth is, yeah, humanity all started out as female. So there is a feminine dimension mm-hmm. to our collective humanity. Yeah. Even the most masculine of guys <laughs> have have that. And so, yeah, the, the church... The people of Israel are described as the female counterpart to Mm -hmm. God himself as the spouse. And that's why bishops wear wedding rings. Well, we wear bishops rings. exactly. But this is our wedding ring, which symbolizes our union with the church, the Mm -hmm. church that we're called to govern and lead. But it's not a political thing. It's governance. It's leadership. But we have to love the church, Mm -hmm. just like Christ loved the church. Exactly. As his bride.
0: Well, thank you so much, Bishop Thomas Dow. Bishop Dow, thank you so much again for your time, your precious time, and for answering all these questions. These questions were like, they were so interesting. And again, like I, I said before, I think we have to do a part two because we still have lots of questions on. And I know these questions, they're they're coming from young adults and adults that they're shy to ask, but I'm like, bring those questions because I know, I know a Bishop, and he's like, he's an open book here and he's willing to answer those questions. So thank you so much again for your time.
1: It's and- my pleasure. My, uh, just, if I can conclude my, uh, my dad, as I said, was never shy to take any question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I really, I believe in that, in that kind of openness. So if anybody has a question, maybe they can send it to you for our part two eventually. Yeah. But it's uh, it's a real joy and a privilege to be able to tackle these things. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity.
0: And do you have a special message to these young adults concerning their faith journey and having a lot of doubts concerning all of that? What would you recommend or what would you say uh, to them?
1: Yeah, if you the, the funny thing is people see the church as very stodgy and people want to rebel against it but actually catholics who really understand their faith and live it are in the minority so if if you want to be in the rebellious minority become a catholic a practicing catholic and you'll get all of the the usual criticism that any rebellious minority will ever get in any culture in any time of history (laughs) i say that tongue-in-cheek but only partly. but I'll tell you, it's worth it because the church is like a building that's bigger on the inside than the outside. From the outside, it can look small and and kind of drab, and then you go inside and you realize, oh my gosh, it's it's big, it's light, it's it's, it's there's something majestic about it. Um, so don't be discouraged. And as I said. The church will not ask you if you enter. Will not ask you to check your brain at the door. Uh, you'll actually be challenged to go deeper, mm-hmm. uh, to go further. If somebody tries to dissuade you from that, then you know they're they're the ones who are not being a good Catholic. That's for sure. We have to continue on this journey together. Don't sell yourself short. I believe in you, and I believe that a you can. Faith is comprehensible. It, it's subtle, but it's not so hard to understand when it's you know presented okay i think generally we can get it and in terms of living it it's going to call us to be our best self so if you want to be your best self at the very least just explore what what,
0: what
1: what jesus has to offer
0: explore thank you so much thank you again so much and god bless you bishop dow god bless you
1: My pleasure. God bless everybody.
0: All right. That's it for this week's episode, my friends. If you have questions about anything we've spoken about here on the podcast today, I would love to hear from you. You can always connect with me on social media. I'm Maribel Mayorga on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But for now, I want to thank you so much for being part of today's journey. And I'm really grateful that you chose to spend your time with me. God bless you.